when I was growing up and I didn't understand about all about the crucifixion and all about the cross and Good Friday, I, I, I probably like you, I wondered what was good about the Friday that Jesus died. You know, I mean, really, as a boy, I didn't. He was beaten, he was wounded, he was bruised, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was forsaken, he was condemned, he was accused, etc. He died. What's good about that? The older I got, the more I learned the word, the more I understand it wasn't good for him, but it was good for me. Because I should have beaten, mocked, crucified. I should have died for my own sins. Romans 5 and 6 says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Don't you like the next two words? It has changed my life. But God. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. I always have the challenge of knowing that I'm coming to preach here and kind of shifting the gear of worship and it's more me and less of you. Worship is all about all of us participating and I always have the fear that the enemy would steal the moment and he would put you in a relaxed, distracting mode and make me look like I'm supposed to be an entertainer or charge up your batteries or something. It's still about God and all of us. I'd rather shut up my mouth and send you home if I would offend the Holy Spirit by proceeding. But His Word does not offend Him. And I want you to pray that God would just give us the capacity. I know this is spring break. I know it's Palm Sunday. I know, I know a lot of things have to happen in our lives. But I also know that we'll never have these moments again at the foot of the cross. And I relish. I, I, I'm jealous over your prayers. Reach your hands in my direction. Would you offer that and I pray over you. Lord, save us now. And I know you've already saved us, but I, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. Holy Father, I pray, O oh God, I, I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that I would understand the Scripture when it says, let there be less of me and more of you. I don't want to struggle through a message. I don't want to be distracted by the work of the enemy and his distractions. I don't want to just fill in a slot of time because I'm the pastor and supposed to preach. I, I want to represent you well, and I want you, God, to be pleased in our worship today. God, we got stuff. We got baggage. We got all kinds of stuff that we got to bring to you today, God. And thank you, Lord, that you've invited us to do that. Save us now and anoint us now and change us in whatever way you know that we need it. In Jesus' name. Everybody say, in Jesus' name. Say amen. Amen as you're seated in his presence. Thank you, Jesus. Save us now. Some years ago, on a Friday evening, I was looking at the ABC News show called 2020. And there was on that show a particular story that I can describe as the struggle of the extent of love. Or the struggle as it relates to the power of love. It was a story about a couple that were married and about four years into their marriage they decided to have children. After they had tried on several occasions and, and more than once and for them they found they were unable to have children. They desired so much to have a child, but every time they tried, it wouldn't bring conception. They decided then to go to a medical lab and use the procedure that we now know as artificial insemination. And that would be where the husband's sperm could be scientifically united with the wife's egg. And as a result, under the best possible conditions, this thing of fertilization might take place. 
It was not a sure thing, but it was more than they could hope for on their own. They had tried. Not long thereafter, the good news came that the wife conceived and she was discovered to be having twins. One girl and the other, of course, a boy. Well, needless to say, upon that news, after they tried so much on their own, but now this process helped, they were ecstatic. But something went wrong. It was discovered not long after the birth of these two healthy children, normal children. It was discovered that the blood work of the children revealed a blood type completely different from their parents. And when they discovered this, it crushed the parents. The children, of course, as the DNA testing was done... It was discovered that the children were the product of their mother, but not the husband. In other words, he, the husband, was not the biological father. The mother made up her mind that she was determined to care for and love and take care of these children. The husband, however, was having a more difficult time. He confessed he loved his wife. He knew it wasn't her fault. He knew it because of the time of conception that she didn't have an affair and that she would not. The fault was in the lab. At the lab, they used someone else's sperm to impregnate the egg of his wife. Even though they knew all that, He, the husband, confessed that he could not bring himself to love those beautiful children as his own. I saw the documentary. I saw it. And so I saw the tears come down his cheek from his eyes. I heard the quiver in his voice. The emotions he felt. He wrestled with the fact that they were not his children and wondered who their father might be. She, the wife, wrestled with the question of why could he not love them anyway, anyhow? Why could he not be a father to them anyway? As the story unfolded, the couple separated. The husband took them to the airport, hugged and kissed them, wept and cried over them. He knew he was going to miss them, but he let them go because he was unable to reconcile the question of love. The extent of her love and the power of her love was unlimited. But for him, he could only go as far as the knowledge that he was not the father. And in this kind of world that you and I live in, On April 1, 2012, with a multitude and myriads of definitions of love, we need a most perfect model of what the power of love really is. Today's April Fool's Day. And a lot of people can tell you that they were fooled by somebody else not realizing when they were told that I love you that later on that love would be betrayed and they were fooled by the phrase I loved you but the actions was otherwise. A lot of people gave their hearts away or heart away To somebody else who said, I love you, and it wasn't even April Fool's Day. To find out that they were played the fool. And in this midst of all these different expressions of what the power of love is, there is in my understanding no better place than the Scripture to help us to understand the power of love. Let me say this to you. This is the premise for a lot of what I'm going to say here, and I'm going to just be moving right on. 
The first thing I want you to observe about love is that the love of God is such that He loves us in spite of what He knows about us. And the love that we can have one with another that can build our relationship and help us to move on and build up one another is that if we can become like Jesus and love one another in spite of what we know about one another because all of us have got stuff. I might tell you this in our text. There are four truths about who we really are. God knew these four things about us and He loved us anyhow. The Bible says in our text, and your Bible may be still open to verse 6, it says that we were powerless. If I say the word powerless... Some of you sounded powerless. (laughs) To be powerless means that we can't change our basic nature on our own. Many times in the New Testament, of course, where we're reading from, this word powerless is used to apply to the sick and the feeble, those who've kind of been wiped out by some kind of disease. But this word is also used in the Testament, in New Testament here to mean that we have no power to come up with a plan of justification on our own. To justify ourselves. This word powerless means that none of us is able to do even one small thing to please God or achieve salvation on our own. We're powerless. And the Bible says, so is the love of God for us that where we were still without strength, powerless, in due time, Christ died. Then he goes on to say in the same verse, please, verse 6, is the word ungodly. It means that we have no desire to change in the first place. We are not only helpless to save ourselves, but this word ungodly means vile, obnoxious. It's a true description. Have you ever, have you, have ever looking for a word to describe the behavior or the attitude or the actions of somebody that just, you just knew they were ungodly? You ever, you ever said, uh, just an ungodly person. The word ungodly indicates that we were both irreverent and impious. And it means that while we knew that we were sinners, we didn't care. We weren't going to change. While we knew that we were rascals, might even use the word reprobate. Sin is so deceiving and so, so captivating and so blinding until it makes us come to the place where we're ungodly and we know it. We might not even care. Then there's a, there's a third truth that God knew about us. Jesus knew about us, but he came on anyhow, died anyhow. Sinners. Sinners. That's a very common term as it relates to the unsaved. And sinners here means that we were desperately in need of a change that we couldn't make and we didn't want to make. We were neither righteous nor were we good when Jesus died for us. The word sin means to miss the mark. That's what it means, to miss God's mark. Often when I think about this phrase, to miss the mark, and the word sin, I think about a bullseye as a target. Yesterday I had a most unusual experience I never had before in my life. It helps me to describe missing the mark. Uh, I went with a few of the brethren from the church to a shooting range. Yeah, I know, you're laughing. You ain't started laughing yet till I tell you the rest. <laughs> Me at a shooting range. I have never shot a pistol in my life till yesterday. I have one gun that is a rifle sort of a... I don't know what it is. <laughs> it was passed down by my wife's family to me because it's sort of a family thing. You pass it down. Donnell, I don't even have a bullet the gun. So don't worry, I, you know. But, I, but you know, um, there's so many gun enthusiasts, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here about, you know, okay, NRA and all that, okay? I'm just here about just telling you my little story, okay? <laughs> we have officers in the church, ex-military men, and, you know, I, I want to know something about this. 
And so they, they, you know, I got out there and they suited me up and they put this thing on my head so it could muffle the sound. And they told me how to stand and how to hold my uh, hand and how to put my finger over here and my thumb over here and make sure that when it comes back, it don't, you know. You see it on TV. Give me a little holster right here. And I could tell those guys, they love their pastor, but they were very careful. You got to hold the gun down like this, Pastor, until you get it. And you got to flip the switch from S to F when you get ready. And, and you got to hold it down. And I can see them just say, hold it down. <laughs> but I want to talk to you guys with my hand. <laughs> and those guys are taking good care of me. So you got to stand a certain way. You got to hold your hand. You got to see that right here and bring that over here and with your eyes. And, and I got bifocals. I was looking like this. You ever seen Barney? Yeah, Barney Five. And before I took my first shot, I wonder why all the guys went back to their cars and their trucks and hiding under the mat. They, they didn't do that. They stayed with me. And I took the first shot, and the first thing I said was, did I hit it? It was only like 36 feet away. And then I thought to myself, I missed the mark. But, but here's what I say about God's mark. God's got a mark. It's called salvation. It's called righteousness. It's, got, it's called peace. It's called protection. And if you walk away from the saving grace of Jesus and His gift of salvation given to us on the cross of Calvary that He offers us without a cost to us, and we go and live like we want to as powerless and ungodly and sinners. And the Bible even says in the next in verse number 10, we are called enemies of God. Can I get an amen? amen? If we choose to live powerless, ungodly sinners and enemies, we miss God's mark and we can blame nobody but ourselves. God has a mark for all of us when we walk in the light and live in the light and His light shines upon us. We are hitting the mark every time. If you know you are and you're saved, give the Lord some praise. Now, I'm not just trying to be discouraging and hard on Palm Sunday. I'm calling it like it is. Pastor, why? Why are you being so... No, this is how the Bible describes us. And I want to tell you something. We might as well agree with the Bible because that's exactly who we are. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters... That when we realize who we were without Christ and how lost we are and how far down God went to get us and how deep in the mires of our rebellion and sin and bad attitude that God just kept digging to find us to pull us out. Even though we could never do one thing for God, He couldn't do for Himself. He kept pursuing us because of His love. Now, now listen to this. There is no reason for God to love us. You and I are not naturally lovable people. Just ask your husband or your wife. Ask your mama or your daddy. We are not naturally lovable people. We live in the house of flesh. We may look nice when we come on Sunday. We may have our hair combed, those of us who have hair. We may have our teeth in, those of us who buy teeth. We may look very nice and well. We may look lovable on the outside, but really we are not very lovable. I tell my wife on occasion, I'm older and I can't help it. I'm short and I can't grow taller. I'm bald and I've given up on that. And I said, honey, as I get older, don't let me get old and grouchy. And I wish I never told that because now she helps me. Sin has infected our lives so much that it has distorted even the parts of us that we think are beautiful. There's a word you probably hadn't heard before, but it'll, it suits right here. Sin uglifies. Everything it touches. Did you hear me? Sin uglifies everything it touches. It comes to you. Sin comes to you in packages with nice wrapping and nice ribbon and nice bow and beautiful exterior looking. But sin uglifies everything it comes in contact with, including our lives. 
And there is no reason for God to love us except that it is the fact that God is that kind of God. He loves us because God is love and He can't help in us, love loving us even while we were sinners, powerless, ungodly, and enemies. God is just love and He's going to love anyhow. You see, if God only loved us when we were unlovable, then when we stop being lovable, God stopped loving us and we'd be in a heap of mess. Because there are just sometimes we're not lovable. You think about raising your child, you know, from infancy until, uh, until young adults or uh, teenagers. You think about raising your kid and, you know, and uh, if you just love that child when they smell good and act good and behave good and do good things. It wouldn't be long into their youth that they would be abandoned by you because even when they're in diapers, they, they come a place where, <laughs> you know, they ain't smelling good, they ain't looking good, and they, you know, we just go ahead. You ain't smelling good, you ain't looking good, you ain't lovable, go live with somebody else. Aren't you glad God didn't do that to us? And so we might as well go ahead and agree with God that, yes, God, while these are powerful terms and they are negative, yet they, they do describe who I am. So, God, today I'm not here about the fact that I deserve anything. I'm here about the fact that in spite of everything you knew about me, you love me anyhow. Here's what, in, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, no need to turn there, Jesus sat around the table on the night prior to his arrest to have a meal with his disciples known as the Passover. And there the Bible says, this Jesus, who is God in the flesh, sat with some men who he calls his disciples. And sitting with them, he knew some things about them and what they would do that night and the days beyond. He knew... His extent of love for them, but he also knew knew their extent of love for him. And yet he sat there with them to spend the last few hours of his life with that kind of company. What do you mean, Pastor? He knew that his hour had come. The first verse of John 13 says his hour had come. His hour to be falsely accused, to be falsely arrested, to be a part of a kangaroo court mock trial, to be beaten and scourged and treated like the scum of the earth. The heaviness of the load of the next 36 or 72 hours was heavy upon them and upon him in particular. What did he know? He knew that he would be forsaken and disowned. Some of the same people sitting around that table would deny him and disown him. How would you handle that? I mean, if you had a choice to spend the rest, your last few hours in this world with anybody, would you choose this kind of people who would bail out on you after all you've done for them? But he came on anyhow. He knew there was a traitor at the table. He said that this night one of you will Sell me short. Today's vernacular will be a traitor. And there was. And we know who it is. He also knew that someone at the table would deny him. We know it's Peter. Peter says in about the 37th verse of the chapter 13 of John... He says, though everybody else around this table forsake you, I'm going to hang in there with you. I'll stay with you until the end. And Jesus says, oh, you will, huh? Before the rooster crows one time in the morning, you'll deny you've known me three times. Did it happen? And yet Jesus, knowing this, stays at the table with these kind of people. Here's something else he knew. The first of the week at the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, they hailed him. You know about Palm Sunday. You know, uh, on the week that we now know as Passion, it began with Jesus entering Jerusalem and he was placed on the back of a donkey. And as he entered Jerusalem, people lined up on both sides of the path where the donkey would walk with Jesus on his back. 
And they cut off palm branches from palm trees around and they cut them off and they waved them in the air and they they took off their coat and their garments and they placed it on the path where the donkey would go and Jesus being carried on the back of the donkey and they yelled out and they had jubilation and celebration. They hollered out what the choir sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were wanting to make him king right then. They looked as though they were hanging there with him. That was the first of the week they hailed him. By the end of the week they nailed him. You heard me, didn't you? The same, some of the same crowd who could have spoke up and said it was my daughter that he rose from the dead, brought to life. It was my eyes that he opened. Anybody hearing me? Some of the same people who could have stood at the trial or when they found out that Jesus was going to die and say, Whoa, stop, stop. Hailed him and then nailed him. Don't look anywhere but right here. You ever had anybody to hail you one day and nail you the next? No, keep your elbows right here. Keep your elbows right here. It's too soon to have a whoop glory. You know what? Some of the people that I have greatest confidence in are the people who know me and yet have been forgiving and compassionate and given me a second chance. They know me, and yet they love me. I don't mean that just giving me a license for me to insult them and hurt them. I have done pastoral counseling for the 27 years I've served this church. And there were some very difficult times when in the presence of their spouse in my office, one spouse would confess to the other that I have not only been difficult to live with in this marriage, but I have committed adultery against you. It's amazing what the love of God can do. I have watched a woman sit in a chair with hot tears coming off her eyes. And, and she's dabbing with a, with a Kleenex after hearing what her husband says. I've seen the reverse done. It ain't just been a man against a... The longer I've passed it, the more I've seen the equal balance of how people cheat. And it ain't just a female or male issue sin. Well, I want to tell you something. I've seen, I've seen it in my spirit. I know the Bible makes provisions for a spouse who is the innocent party. They're not the one who committed fornication or adultery. It makes provision for that spouse to leave the marriage, divorce, and marry later if they choose. I know the Bible, Jesus makes that provision. But Jesus also makes the provision of when it is in your power and you can forgive them and love them. And in spite of what you know about them, pray. And if you can forgive, forgive. I've seen some time where as the pastor, my flesh got all in that. And I want to give some other advice. You know, I'm mighty small to be preaching so big, ain't I? I've had some times when I've seen that woman cry and that guy repeatedly sexually cheated on her. I've seen some times where I want to get a few elders and a few other people from the power team and take them behind the shed. We didn't have to put on no hood. I want us to beat the night light and the daylight and the morning light out of that guy. And say, here, if you still love him, the remains is here. Thank God he don't love like we love. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. That felt good therapy. I don't know where that fits in this sermon, but... Here's something else about the love of God. I won't get to all of it. I'll get to what I can. Jesus laid aside his rights in suffering for our sins. And let me see if I can clarify. You know, we live in a day and time where we get... All these kind of rights, rights. I want my rights. The the Bible says in in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verse 24, about this particular occasion of what we know as the Last Supper, the night of his arrest, that there was a rivalry among a few of the disciples, two in particular, about which one would be the greatest in the kingdom when they come into the kingdom with Jesus. Y'all still with me? You know, uh, which one will get to sit on his right hand? I got some rights. I've been, he chose me as his disciples five days before he chose you. So I got some seniority. I got some rights. I'm going to sit on his right hand. There, there was an argument. Did, did, did we not know a case where a mother came and wanted to speak on behalf of her sons? Am I speaking the truth here? We'll send mama to fix this up. Jesus says, have you, you know what you're asking? Talking about rights. Can you drink this cup that I'm going to drink in suffering? 
Can you carry, uh, somebody ought to help me, ought to just monitor one person. Somebody, hear me, can you, can you carry this cross? Here they are in the next 36 or 72 hours. He's going to be beaten, mocked, scourged to the point of death. And then eventually die from it. And the only thing they could think about is their rights. There's something else happened that night at the table. A, a few disciples were given the instructions by Jesus before he went to the supper that night. To go into that particular part of town and go there and you'll find a certain man and, and he's going to be going up to a particular room. You follow him in that room. He's going to be carrying something and you tell him this is where the master wants to have a supper tonight. The Passover with his disciples. And because of me being the master and all, he will give you permission. You go prepare that room and we'll all eat together tonight. They got there and they forgot to prepare one thing. And that was who would wash the feet of the guest. It was normal to the culture of that day and time that whoever hosts the guests would provide a servant or they themselves as an act of, of being a, 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 a servant, as an act of taking care of their guests, an act of hospitality. Someone, either the host or someone he designates, would wash the feet of all the guests. The disciples, a couple of them realized, hey, we didn't make those plans. We are the one hosting the meal. We didn't make the plans for somebody to wash feet. And the rivalry, the, 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 the rights, thing came up, the rights. I'm a senior elder. I'm a senior disciple. I'm a senior apostle. I ain't washing no feet. You wash feet. Rights. You know what the measure of love is? Jesus took off his outer coat. Put a towel around his waist. Ask for a, 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 a container, a pottery container. Fill it up with water. I'm talking about, I'm talking about this kind of love. that the, He who was the king of glory without sin, whom every disciple should have washed his feet and wept at his feet. He takes the bowl. He takes the water. He takes the towel and goes to every person one by one. And with tears in his eyes and brokenness in his spirit, he washes their feet because he wasn't about rights. He was about salvation. If we husbands are willing to give up more rights in order to save our family, we'd be blessed. If we wives, are, you wives are willing to give up some rights, even though you have rights, and willing to suck it up by the grace of God, help you through this hurdle. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be more like Jesus. What do you mean more like Jesus? I'm hurrying. Look at the screen. This is what Jesus did. In Philippians' account of chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind, this word mind here means attitude. Everybody say attitude. Let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of attitude did he have? Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Help me, Holy Ghost. I, I'm just learning. I'm a student here. I don't, if I come across cocky like I got all this fig, figured out, I, I ask you to forgive me. I'm just a fellow sufferer, but I'm passionate. I want to do better. Look what Jesus this verse, verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. All these preachers nowadays want to be called elder, bishop, doctor, reverend, pastor. I, there's a place for that. You understand? There's a place for that. I believe in, in, in doctor, reverend, bishop. If you earn it, I believe. But I b- believe you just show up on the scene and you just came on, the, you came on the scene last week and delivered from some kind of sin. And all of a sudden you want to have an entourage? I don't know why I said that, but... He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being formed in the appearance, found in the appearance as a man, he did what? I didn't hear you. I heard you now. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Romans practiced crucifixion on the people they opted to punish. But they hated crucifixion. It was so despicable that a Roman citizen was never allowed to die by crucifixion. It was such a horrendous death. But he humbled himself. He wasn't about servant. He was about being savior. Can I get an amen here, somebody? Please understand when I tell you that love that God demonstrates involved modeling in the place of mere words. 
I can say I love you all I want to. James says, show me your faith with your actions. And I, I, I am hurrying. This ain't the day you hunt eggs, is it? So where, where are we going? <laughs> we ain't going after no eggs. We're going after Jesus. Yeah. We did, where we did that. Show me your words and your actions, and then I'll know your true love. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates. There's the action. Everyone everybody say demonstrate. God didn't just sit up in the balconies of glory in heaven light years away from planet earth and simply say, I love you. But while the crunch of the apple was still in the mouth of Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, God demonstrated His love for us knowing that Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned in the Garden of Eden. And from that moment, He began to plan how He could reconcile us and bring us back to the Father so that we won't burst hell wide open. Somebody glad for it. Thank God. Before you and I would even become a seed and an embryo in our mother's womb, God made plans for our salvation. You ought to get a little bit happy. (laughs) Please understand, I know I yell. That's just who I am. I know I perspire. And I stay right up here far from the people when I spit. It's just, I'm not, I, I, you, you, you know, you, you, I appreciate getting a salary from this church as the pastor, but you ain't paying me for right now. I'm doing this right now because of what he's done for me, okay? You, nobody gonna pay me to preach. I, I, in other words, I'm gonna preach, I'm gonna testify, I'm gonna praise God, I'm gonna lift up. You don't pay me to do that part of what I do because of what God's done for Alan Matura. I'm going to thank him anyhow. Yeah. Woo! Seventy thousand people down in New Orleans last night watching Ohio State and Kansas. I went to bed at ten thirty five knowing I got to get up at five thirty, but Kansas I was pulling for them. It's called the final four. And now Kansas is in the final two. Whoop glory. I know that's kinda carnal. And if you like Kentucky, God bless you. Don't send me no email. I'm pulling for Kansas. And if they lose, don't send me no email either. <laughs> you talk about whistles blowing, people jumping and jiving, having a big time. 70,000 people. Even the losers are going to go up and down Bourbon Street celebrating their loss. You don't come here telling me shut my mouth or get dignified or act proper or act like I got two or three degrees. I know when to act proper. And I'm not trying to break protocol. But when the fire of the Holy Ghost has cleansed my life, I can't be still because of His great love. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about the love of God. I'm, I'm hurrying. You've been around me. You know that ain't mean a thing, does it? <laughs> Y'all been around me a while? You know when I do this? It's because I'm looking to see my wrist is sweating. I ain't got nothing to do. You know what always bothers me about you all, though? Is when you all sit in the chair and you keep beating your watch against the chair like if it ain't working while I'm preaching. <laughs> and I'm only teasing. I never see you do that. Don't start it now. Love continues reaching in the face of resistance. Did you know, even though Jesus knew Judas would sell him short for a few dollars more? Isn't that what Judas did? For a few dollars more, he sold the Lord and he sold his soul. I preached last month on one sermon titled for a few dollars more. It was the month of stewardship last month. Might I just interject and tell you that last month, in the month of stewardship, when every Sunday I got up to preach, the devil says you're going to make some people mad. And the Lord told me to free his people up financially by preaching on it. Last month, this church 
had a record receipts of tithes and offerings in 37 years. There's never been another month in this church like last month. And God doesn't intend for it to stop because we had a month. He intends to. But for a few dollars more, you see, Judas carried the treasury. He was the bookkeeper and the bag keeper and the banker for the ministry. Here's how God, Jesus, persisted to help Judas if he would repent. In spite of knowing what he knew about what Judas would do. The Bible says that at the seat of the table during the night of the Passover where they had the Lord's Supper, which we know is the Lord's Supper but the Passover meal, John the Beloved sat on his right side, a place of honor. And Judas sat on his left side. Historians tell us that. The way that they reclined at the table to eat or fellowship was not like with the chairs and stools like we have now. But they would kind of recline on one arm. And so if Jesus was here, he'd recline like this. And John was on his right, he'd recline. And John's head would be right here at the heart of Jesus. Isn't that great? But not only was John honored, Judas was honored. Because at the table, Jesus reclined and his head would be at the heart of Judas. Did you ever see it that way? I never did until I studied this. Not only is Judas called of Jesus to be a disciple, but he's close in physical proximity and spirituality to the heart of Jesus. Surely that would have said to him, just looking down, just an eye cast to the head of Jesus nearby. I don't want to do this. And here's another thing. Jesus said, whomever dips the bread in the cup the first one I give it to after it's served that will be the one that betrays me Judas was given the bread immediately after Jesus said it he dipped in it and yet he pursued when he left to go out Jesus said to Judas when he went, he left the supper to go sell Jesus for 30 lousy pieces of silver. Jesus' final words to Judas was, whatever you do, do quickly. The other disciples thought that Jesus told Judas that we got to pay for this meal. We got to pay for the renting of this room. Since you handled the purse and the billful, go do that quickly. But that ain't what it meant. I got to tell you. That in spite of what Jesus knew that we would do with the cross, the Bible, the holy place, and all the things that are sacred that God's given us, especially His Son. In spite of what God knew what we would do, He persisted in inviting us. I'm closing. They were, she was 15, he was 16 years old when they met. They met in high school. She was a cheerleader. And he was a football player. And they became sweethearts. Nobody was surprised when they married after graduation. Four years later, into their marriage, two babies later, she, she stood in the kitchen with dirty dishes in the sink, overlooking the sink with a baby on her hip, and a pile of dirty laundry in a corner nearby. Tears streaming down her cheeks. She didn't really think about leaving. She just did it. She left. That night, she called her husband, relieving him of his fears, but a little. He said to her, I'm worried. Where are you? She ignored the questions. What's going on? What are you doing? Where are you? Overwhelmed, she hung up the phone. Over the next three months, she would call about once a week to tell him that she and the kids was okay. But when he would ask where she was, she would hang up the phone. 
this frantic young husband borrowed $1,200 from his family and friends to hire a private detective to find her. Four days later, she was located. Borrowing some more money, he flew to where she was. He found that she was living in a cheap hotel in the city of Des Moines in Iowa. As he flew to where she was, she not knowing that he was coming, he approached her room and there was no doubt fear in his heart and perspiration on his face. With his hands shaking badly, he gently knocked on the door. When she opened the door and they saw each other, he couldn't even remember the speech he had prepared all the time, waiting to give her. He couldn't even remember it. He was so shaken. He, all he could say is, I love you. Won't you come home? She stood there for a long moment and then uncontrollably she melted in his arms. And they both wept and wept for a long time. Just wept. And then they left the motel. They left together. One night, several weeks later, after the kids were in bed, he, the husband, took her by her hand, led her out onto the front porch. They had not yet discussed the incident. He was reluctant to discuss it too soon for fear that she might leave again. But he had to know. He must know. And so he asked her, why wouldn't you come home? Why? When I told you that I loved you and I missed you and I wanted you to come home, why didn't you just come back? She cuddled up next to him in the dark and cool of that night on their porch. And she said, Because before, those were only words. But then you came and found me. You came for me. You know that our father could have stayed up in heaven and sent somebody else. Did anybody hear me? You know that 2,000 years ago he could have sent some high-ranking angel to die. You know that if he wanted to evangelize the world, he could have sent an angel to every one of us individually and there'd have to be no blood and no cross and no suffering and no death and no mockery and no sin. Jesus didn't just sit on a throne in heaven and say, I love you. Come home. Come home. He took off his crown. He took off his robe. He laid aside his scepter. He abandoned his throne. And he came to a barn and was laid in a trough where animals that are smelly and nasty would feed. He became one of us because love is more than words. That's Jesus. Bow your heads. Somebody need to offer a prayer so that, that we don't lose this moment of decision. Amazing love. Oh, hallelujah. Holy Ghost, you are not here by accident. And I know that you probably expect for me to say that, but I'm not saying that by accident either. If you were the only one that offended God and needed rescue from hell, I believe if I was the only one that was a sinner, God would send Jesus and he would come for me anyhow. Pastor Matura, 
I am guilty. I have been powerless. I have been ungodly. I have been an enemy of God and a sinner. And if I were to die today, there's no reason why God should let me into heaven. But pastor, whether I die today or 50 years from now, if Jesus tarries, I do not plan to refuse this great love that God has demonstrated to me. I need him as my savior. Now, I'm going to embarrass you. Just ask you to raise your hands if that's you. You've never been saved or you were saved. Heads bowed and eyes closed, but you need to come back. You know you're lost. Raise your hands. Nobody else looking. I see several hands. Hold it up in faith. I'm not here. I'm not going to put you on a, on a speaker, a microphone, or camera. I'm not going to make you embarrassed. I'm just asking you to confess what you already know about you and say, I need Jesus. Put him down, if you will. Put him down. Pastor, I've got to admit that I'm often like the disciples. I've wanted my rights. I thought God owed me something. After all, I gave my money. After all, I went to church. After all, I forgave. God owes me. And I want to ask the Lord to forgive me for thinking He owes me anything. I owe Him everything. I need to get closer to Him in my walk on this Palm Sunday. If that be you, raise your hands. Oh, many hands. Put them down. Everybody in the house, repeat after me this prayer and repeat it out loud. Lord Jesus. I confess that in spite of what you've known about me, you should have rejected me. I also confess that I am a sinner. I am not worthy of your gift. But today, I receive you, Jesus. I receive you for the first time. Oh, I receive you again. Forgive me of my sins. Wash my sins away by your cleansing blood. Turn me around 180 degrees. Help me, Lord, to do what I know pleases you. Give me the courage to say no to my flesh. And yes to the Spirit of God. Today, Lord, on Palm Sunday, write my name in your book of life. And today, Lord, I will serve you. Because you, God, you deserve the greatest gift I can give. And that is my life from now on. In Jesus' name, amen. Now put your hands together and give Him some thanks. After you have, stand with me. Stand all over the church. I want the prayer team to come. And this is how I want to close. Stand with me if you will. If you, if you don't have to leave, reverence this moment just a little bit longer, okay? And just help me here if you will. Because sometimes a lot of movement just takes away from, from some decisions. So unless you have to. If you need prayer for anything. If you want to confirm that you prayed what I asked you to pray a moment ago in Jesus to save you, and you want to come here and just have somebody else pray with you a moment more, that's why they're here. If you need healing, if you need help for your marriage, if you need help for your finances, if you need help raising kids, if you need a miracle, as we in a moment sing, you can come and somebody pray with you. But this is our closing song, and after a while I'll dismiss you. Sing it if you will. I want you to demonstrate now your receiving of His gift. Because